Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU and WTIU's News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. And today we're going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter movement uh, on the show. And we have three guests with us. Two are in the studio and one's joining us by phone. Michelle Moyd is Associate Professor of History at Indiana University. And Nicole Siegel is Associate Professor of American Studies and History at Indiana University. And also joining us by phone is Dominic Dorsey from Indianapolis. He's the president of the organization Don't Sleep. If you have questions or comments, you can uh, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of Bloomington. Or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So this is a big topic. It's, uh, it's, it's been uh, you know, in the news a lot for, for years, actually, but it's really intensified recently after some police shootings. And I wanted to go first to Indianapolis and Dominic Dorsey. Uh, your organization is called Don't Sleep. Can you explain the, uh, why you founded it and the significance of the name? Well, Don't Sleep is actually an acronym. It stands for Deconstructing Oppression Now Through Solidarity, Liberation, Empowerment, Equity, and Perseverance. Um, the main goal of the organization is to address uh, not specific incidents, but to address systems of oppression. Um, and since those systems are embedded in a variety of things from education to uh, fair housing, employment, um, especially in incidents of uh, state violence and any type of uh, policing, um, these are areas that there are some heavily intersected uh, communities. Uh, we're not just talking about the black community, but the LGBT community, uh, individuals of faith, uh, individuals of different ability status. So we're really interested in trying to uh, build coalitions amongst these different communities uh, with the understanding that uh, liberation is not mutually exclusive and neither is oppression. So as long as we can attack those types of systems with that mindset, uh, that's where we found our most success. So uh, just to, to clarify, so the Black Lives Matter movement, it sounds like you have You've sort of taken that and you've expanded it to other organizations. Is that would that be? I mean, in the in Black a way, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is uh, kind of decentralized in terms of the organization of it. So there are several different organizations across the country uh, who operate under the movement for Black Lives. Um, if you go to New York, there's uh, Black Young People 100. Uh, there is uh, the Justice League NYC. Uh, there's the uh, Ferguson Freedom Network. There's a bunch of different organizations that aren't necessarily titled, quote-unquote, Black Lives Matter, but the movement for black lives and the national organization efforts uh, to try to bring awareness to issues of police brutality are happening in various cities and various states and in the uh, wheelhouse of several different organizations, ours being one of them, along with Indy 10 in Indianapolis. Okay. So, uh, again, so how, does, how do you see your organization sort of um, – Blending with with that movement, um, it sounds like you it is more expansive. Well, in terms of the movement for Black Lives, you have to understand first and foremost we're talking about a system of oppression that's rooted in white supremacy. Um, and saying white supremacy is not one of those situations where it's anti-white or even a situation where we're trying to uh, impart white guilt. It's just the notion of understanding that for a long time in our nation's history, there has been a concerted effort to prove that. There were individuals who are of color or of a different race or what have you that were inferior to that of whites. Um, those types of systems that have been embedded have 
also lend it to other issues. So issues such as uh, poor schools, issues such as poverty in areas that are impoverished and those individuals who are disenfranchised who happen to be people of color. Um, where there is poverty, there is also crime. So as crime increases, so increases the stigma that is associated with people of color who are from those areas. So when you have people from those areas who are people of color who are stigmatized and blackness is criminalized and blackness is weaponized, then you also introduce law enforcement who have this opinion, whether they understand or appreciate or can uh, discern their own microaggressions, who see these individuals, and it's been stated in several different um, uh, texts and, and studies and, and statistics about how African-American males especially are seen as superhuman. Uh, therefore, when those incidents happen where police get involved, uh, excessive force is used because they feel as though this individual is much more likely to resist arrest, they're much more likely to escape, they're much more likely to inflict bodily harm. So it's all embedded. It all has overlap. So in terms of the different initiatives that we put in place and how we see ourselves embedded in this is the fight against police brutality has widespread, wide-reaching implications. While we're looking to make sure that these incidents that happen across the country do not continue to happen, we have to also look at the, the root causes and all of the other issues that are combined with that, because we can't just say, okay, we need police shootings to end. That's all fine and good. We need consequences for those police who get away with these shootings. We need to have uh, more transparency. We need to have uh, the more advocacy on behalf of the parents, we need to make sure that the uh, grand jury system is not one so that the officers have much more protection than the citizens that they are seeking to protect. All that's fine and good, but if we're still imparting and we're still taking part of a system that creates this mentality and this criminalization of African Americans and this weaponization of blackness, then it will perpetuate in different areas beyond police brutality. So we can't just tackle one issue. We have to look at the broader spectrum and make sure that we're moving the needle on all of them. All right. Thanks, Dominic. We're, we're going to we'll broaden this out. I want to bring in our, our panelists here in the studio. Nicole, so how does this, uh, what's happening today, you know, how do you see this differing from, from previous movements? And you know, this is mm -hmm. uh, the issue of, um, you know, racism has been with us for a long time. So mm -hmm. how, how does what's happening today differ from things that have happened in the past? Yeah. Um, what's happening today is just so resonant, so profoundly evocative of several moments in this nation's past. Um, and I mean, I, I think I want to start by saying that um, Dominic's analysis is such a beautiful example of the kind of really broad structural analysis that activists in this movement have. And um, the portrayal of Black Lives Matter as a movement focused solely on police, police brutality, excessive use of force, shootings, racism, whatever, is a way to diminish the kind of structural analysis that activists have and are applying. And um, I, I hope that we will all resist it and instead hear, really listen to, and try to understand and apply that kind of structural analysis, because that's also the way the past can help us understand the present, uh, is if we think about what structurally um, has happened uh, in this country. So, you know, Isabel Wilkerson, the author of a very beautiful book about the great migration of African Americans from the South to the Midwest and the North uh, over, over 50 years at the, in the first part of the 20th century, had a very beautiful op-ed in the New York Times um, where she pointed out the similarities uh, between the shooting death of Tamir Rice and the death of Emmett Till. 
And her point in that comparison was that um, the infliction of black death by um, white supremacist forces sanctioned by the, by the government, whether they're police or not police, uh, is actually greater today than it was in the moment that precipitated the civil rights movement. So according to FBI statistics, it's something like every three and a half days at the nadir, what, what historians call the nadir of U.S. race relations, a black person was lynched. And today, the statistic is something like every, sorry, every four, one in every four days a person was lynched. Today, it's every three and a half days a black man is killed by white police. And I mean, I think that that also uh, may reflect population growth. But I think what we've seen, in fact, is that the violence characterizing the South at, again, what was called the nadir of U.S. race relations has been nationalized and now characterizes the lives of people all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. Just in, in yeah. case people don't uh, know, Emmett Till? Yeah. Oh, Emmett Till yeah. was um, the Chicago-born African-American youth who was uh, killed in the South for uh, famously whistling at a white woman. Um, and his his death precipitated the civil rights movement in part because of the incredible bravery of his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You know, whose presence is, I think, still felt today, Mamie Till, um, is um, evoked in such things as, you know, Beyonce's most recent video where she has the mothers of assassinated black youth mm-hmm. in these beautiful regal portraits within embedded within her her videos i think there are so many ways in which the past is evoked in the present i can i can speak to some Mm -hmm. of the specifics as well but maybe i'll let someone else speak for a moment well let's let michelle uh, Mm -hmm. weigh in i'm just going to ask you to to um, respond to what you've heard from the other two speakers so far um well i agree that um i really like dominic's uh kind of broad and all-encompassing description of the kinds of struggles that need to be linked against the kinds of structural inequalities and um, and oppressive systems that uh, that really, when you get right down to it, are going to affect us all in one way or another unless we wake up. Um, so the Black Lives Matter movement is um, the one that happens to be garnering all the attention right now. Um, and I think they're the ones who have in some ways claimed a space in our political system um, in an expert way, I would add, um, by using social media to their benefit and being in people's faces and refusing to sort of um, uh, to back down in the face of others who would say, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't that effective. You're too, you're too dispersed and there's, there's no clear message and, and all of that sort of rhetoric that um, continues to push back against them. Um, they have really insisted that people listen to the message that they have, and they have pushed back against the idea that there needs to be some sort of um, figurehead leadership. Um, I would also echo uh, Nicole's larger point about the sort of um, deep historical resonances that this moment has. And the more you scratch the surface, the more you pay attention to the ways that the state has responded to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, but also the way the state has responded to the um, the killings of black men and women, I would add. Um, women have not come up yet, but it's important to remember that they are as big a part of this as um, 
as the men. Um, the more you scratch the surface, the more you see that this is absolutely at the root of American history. Um, we have not gotten over the uh, we have not go, gotten over the past in, by any stretch. Um, the civil rights movement of the '60s did not cure everything, and uh, we have a lot of work to do. So, um, so those are my two immediate reactions to what's been said so far, um, and I too could possibly offer more details, <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> but um, you probably have other questions. Well, let me, let me give our phone numbers again, and then I'm going to turn it over to Sarah. So 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348. Outside of the Bloomington area, you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Michelle, I just want to follow up on something you said where you were talking about just the structure of the movement, and some folks have criticized it for being unstructured. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that that is part of why it works. Is, is that it's not? Is, or am I reading too much into what you said? Well, I think... Um, and its ability to affect change because yeah. there's not this one person at the top. Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting about this, um, the way that this discussion plays out in mainstream media, to use that um, overused <laughs> phrase, um, is that, you know, there's an assumption that because Black Lives Matter or the movement for black lives, as I think Dominant rightly pointed out at the very beginning of this segment, um, the fact that there's no sort of I don't know, president or elected leader or something like that, um, does not mean that they don't have a message. And all you have to do really is go to their website um, and read their message. Uh, you can also follow what they, um, what they have on their website to some very concrete policy proposals. So for example, if you go to um, www.joincampaignzero.org, you will see their 10-point plan, their policy suggestions for how to um, begin to address the, the systemic structural problems of police violence. Um, I also, this morning, while I was sort of trying to um, you know, pull my thoughts together about this, stumbled across a site that I hadn't heard of before, www.wetheprotesters.org, which is another um, really wonderful uh, compendium of um, all the different elements that are kind of out there doing the work on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I think what's different about this movement, and uh, certainly others can chime in here, is that, um, first of all, it is a youth movement. It is, um, and that's not different from the 60s, but perhaps it's different from um, the legacy of the 60s and the people who have owned the civil rights movement movement up to this moment. So somebody like John Lewis, right, um, the kind of iconic example, living example um, of, of what that movement stood for. This movement is, is different from that because they are, uh, because of technology for one thing, um, because of the sort of very um, immediate and instantaneous way in which people can respond to um, things that they see happening, right? So Alton Sterling's um, murder uh, was sent out to the world within, you know, I don't know exactly how long, but very quickly after it happened. And, uh, and that was by virtue of somebody having shot it on his cell phone camera and putting it out uh, uh, over the internet and, and out to the world. And then uh, by using hashtags, of course, um, uh, people are very quickly able to see what's coming in the news stream. Um, 
it often enters alternative media first, and then sometime later, uh, the big media picks it up. And so I think um, technology was certainly central to what happened in the 60s as well, right? I mean, we wouldn't have those iconic images of the civil rights struggle of the 60s without television. Mm-hmm. But this is, this is still, um, this is another texture. This is something that um, is really about immediacy and, um, and kind of um, an uncontrolled media, if you will, media that um, because of the web and because there are so many bloggers um, can get their message out uh, or at least can put information out for people to then, to then turn into a message uh, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I'd like to speak to this issue of the leaderlessness of, um, of Black Lives Matter or of the movement for black lives. Um, you know, I think it bespeaks a great hunger for a kind of a new model of social movement and a new model of political organization in general, of a kind of horizontal leadership. And we saw that with Occupy, Mm -hmm. which got the same kinds of criticisms of not having a message, but was really transformative of the fabric of social organizing in this country and and maybe elsewhere. Um, And I think that hunger reflects a reaction against the profoundly sexist and overly authoritarian uh, model implied by the idea of a leader of the leadership, which is often quite paralyzing when, uh, as we've seen in, in moments when people have said things like, where are all the leaders? And there's sort of a yearning for a great father figure. Uh, you know, the, where is MLK today? Um, and I, I think that's part of some of what's going on in our formal political arena as well. Um, but I, I also think it's no accident that this particular movement um, is described as leaderless when the three actual leaders are queer black women, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Colores. And this is not a leaderless movement. There are actually concrete leaders, people who founded an organization, uh, run websites, you know, and it's no accident that also these three uh, activists are longtime, very experienced social movement advocates, um, Patrice Colares in the LA-based Bus Riders Union, the Labor Community Strategy Center. Um, When I lived in Los Angeles, I often encountered her through abolitionist organizing when I worked with the local chapter of critical resistance there. Um, And uh, Opal Tometi is um, a longtime immigrants' rights activist, Alicia Garza, a social and racial justice advocate. So um, these are folks who are building on long histories of activism, and I think what they show is that Leaders like ideas emerge on an, on a wellspring of much less visible kind of collective momentum. You know, you don't get a leader and you don't get an idea without a lot of people already believing and feeling uh, and thinking a thing. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is a this is a model of leadership that much better reflects. Um, the actual shape of social movements in which the people doing the work are not the people who get the publicity and the visibility. This is particularly true for movements that have been subtended by black women, but um, whose glory has gone to a few maybe church-based, maybe politically-based men. So, you know, I I think that the, the leaderlessness rhetoric is complicated and we should give it our full attention as well. I agree with all of that. I'm sorry, were you getting ready to say something? Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, 
I appreciate and agree with everything that's been previously stated. Um, obviously, we, de we definitely need to make sure that it is acknowledged that it is not just black men who are targeted by the state violence that has occurred and has sprung forth the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you can't, the, the whole Say Her Name hashtag was created specifically to address the erasure of African-American women who have died uh, in the process of this movement, women like Rakia Boyd, women like Sandra Bland, women like Maya Hall, who was a queer woman of color, who was actually a trans woman, um, women, young women like uh, Anaya Stanley Jones, who was killed while sleeping on a couch with her grandmother. Uh, we can't erase these voices and these names from the movement as we talk about uh, the movement for black lives. And I also wanted to indicate, uh, in addition to the Campaign Zero and We Are the Protesters, I encourage people to go to blacklivesmatter.com. There is an actual Black Lives Matter website, and it expands on the principles, and people want to kind of um, minimalize the, the statement and the, the activity and, and all of the initiatives in the movement for black lives, but it covers things like restorative justice, uh, diversity, uh, globalism, collective value, the need to affirm our transgender siblings, the need to affirm uh, black women, uh, black families, the need for empathy, all those types of things are addressed there. Um, and it's all an integral part of the work that's being done. Um, in terms of the leaderlessness, I think that what we have come to expect um, due to the conditioning that we've had over the course of our lives and in history books is we're looking for that, like they say, we're waiting for Dr. King. We're waiting for that, that leader that is sanitized and is you know easily packaged for our consumption so that people can point to him and say that's a respectable individual that we should be listening to. And that's not the way that this, this movement is set up to work. Not only that, but you know we have to reject the, the paternalism of, you know, erasing these women who have been leading this movement. A majority of mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. chapters and a majority of the organizations that have been developed in this movement are chaired and are led by mm -hmm. women. Um, As has been about, true historically as well. Exactly, exactly. So those voices are always minimalized. And when you're looking for someone to say this is a leader in this movement, they wouldn't readily recognize those individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why uh, D. Ray McKinnison is, is one of the premier voices, because he's a male but they don't want to talk about Janetta Elsie. They don't want to talk about Elle Hearns. They don't want to talk about any of these other black women and black queer women and black trans women who are leading this movement and are actually behind the scenes orchestrating a lot of this. Um, the, the, the disjointedness is an intentional uh, presentation to make it appear as though we have no goals, we have no aims, that we have not put together any type of policies or any type of premise behind the movements and the demonstrations that have taken place. It's all intentionally done to make it appear as though we have no point behind the, the noise that we're raising, but that's, anything could be further from the truth. All right. We're, I know I have questions. I know Sarah has questions. I'm hoping our, re, our uh, listeners out there have questions, and if you do, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348, or you can send your question in to us uh, on our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, but we're going to have to take a short break. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. 
and you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we're talking about um, basically social justice today, the Black Lives Matter movement and an organization, Don't Sleep, in Indianapolis, which has a lot of different areas uh, of social justice that uh, it is working on. And um, we have three guests with us. Dominic Dorsey is the president of Don't Sleep. He's on the phone with us. Michelle Moyd is associate professor of history at Indiana University. And Nicole Siegel is associate professor of American studies and history at Indiana University. And you can join us by calling 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Or you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, I know Sarah and I both have questions. You want to go first? You want me to? Okay, I'm going to go first. <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, Dominic, I did. I went to the Black Lives Web website, Black Lives Matter website today, and there were. It was really, uh, to me, it was very informative because they they take on eleven myths. One of them being that it's a leaderless movement. Um, and you know, the other thing that I think a lot of people talk about a lot, and it's a real hot button issue, is this whole idea that you know, blue lives matter or all lives matter. And and so I'd like for you, uh, any of any of the three of you, really, to explain you know the significance of Black Lives Matter and why these other these other labels um, are offensive to people who are in the movement. I think what's important to recognize and understand first and foremost is when you hear the phrase Black Lives Matter, it's not to, to impart any undue importance. It's not to say that no other lives matter. To do so is, is completely disregarding the, the birth of the movement in general. It's saying that, you know, I think that we've gotten away from the protect and serve mantra for some of these police officers who have committed these heinous crimes, and it's become a situation where their priority is to make it home safely, not necessarily to protect and serve, not necessarily to look and seek to do, uh, to use the minimum amount of force possible to subdue and to arrest an individual. So when we're saying black lives matter, if we can see and have seen over the course of history numerous incidences where uh, individuals who are not persons of color have been able to be apprehended without use of excessive force, without use of chokeholds, without use of a gun. Uh, to disarm or to, to uh, subdue an individual. You can't look like a situation like uh, what happened with Walter Scott, what happened with Alter Sterling, what happened with Philando Castile, what happened with any number of the individuals of the 150 and growing who have died this year, plus the individuals who have died last year, going all the way back to uh, Oscar Grant and Sean Bell back in 2000, uh, I believe, six. Uh, this has been going on for uh, quite some time. It's to say Black Lives Matter is the same way that everyone else's life matters. You can't sit here and use a different, heavier hand when you're working with communities of color than you do with anyone else. If you can apprehend Dylan Ruth, who walks into a church, shoots nine black people, and get him in a bulletproof vest, stop for a Burger King sandwich before taking him to a police station, you can't tell me that you can't offer the same type of kid glove approach to an individual who's selling CDs in front of a store. It just doesn't make sense. 
And then when you take it and go into a situation where you have to say, well, all lives matter or will blue lives matter. Well, if you go from saying black lives matter to saying all lives matter, but have no problem saying blue lives matter, then the issue that you have isn't with feeling as though black lives are more significant. It's because you can't bring yourself to say that black lives matter. If you can replace that with anything else, your issue isn't with the movement. Your issue is with blackness. And can I add one thing here? Um, This is another sort of uh, really um, succinct way of thinking about this. Blue lives is an occupation. Um, Black lives... Uh, black lives, and I would, you know, I would be so bold as to go ahead and include um, people of color across the across the spectrum here: um, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Americans, etc. Um, uh, those are the skins that people wear. Um, so when we say Black Lives Matter, we're talking about humanity, um, and we're talking about people, you know, living right. Um, Blue lives is an occupation. And, uh, All jobs matter. And I think that that is a critical, <laughs> critical distinction. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to um, also note that the sloganization into Blue Lives Matter uh, reflects also a very longstanding state practice of um, refusing to recognize the violence inflicted by police and magnifying the violence incurred by police. So if you look, for example, in um, at the 60s and 70s, you know, which was a, another moment of enormously heightened attention to police excessive use of force in minority communities, you see the state response also of magnifying um, the, the, uh, the problem of police deaths and refusing to count in any systematic way so that there could be any comparative analysis um, police shootings of people of color. And, you know, it's quite astonishing how deeply evocative um, material from that historical period is when compared to what's going on today. Um, the, um, the management of police killings is so highly consistent. Uh, you know, and what we know, in fact, is that um, being a police officer is not really a dangerous occupation. You know, I mean, this is not to say that police officers are not brave people. That's fine. Um, Many of whom go into the profession seeking to serve. Um, But in fact, the occupations that are quite dangerous are things like agriculture, mining, industry. Um, Policing is just not one of the occupations in which people are actually risking their lives and health on a daily basis. We are uh, we we greatly magnify this spectacular incidence of violence, and I think we need to be honest and to recognize that we do so for ideological purposes. So in, until we can have a much more honest accounting of the way we count black death and the way we count blue death, uh, I think we will not be able to wrestle, to reckon with this problem. Nicole, I, I have to challenge you on that, I mm-hmm. guess, and just ask you for more detail. When you say that, you know, police, the uh, job of being a police officer is not a dangerous profession. On, on what data are you basing that? Um, the uh, original analyses of these problems are from um, a group of scholars who picked this up in the 70s, focusing on the period from 1950 forward. Um, Paul Takagi, Sidney Herring, Tony Platt, uh, and they compared statistics on police deaths uh, in the line of duty 
to uh, the killings of civilians, one of the things that they consistently tracked was the state's refusal to keep statistics on police killings of civilians. And this is something that I've encountered in my own research, attempting to figure out whether the police became more lethal over the period that I'm studying, the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And you just can't figure it out from state collected statistics because uh, the things that they measure change from um, uh, deaths in police custody to police-associated shootings. So when they they change the way they describe things, it becomes impossible to track them over time. Um, And they treat what Takagi and his uh, fellow and his colleagues found um, was that Meanwhile, uh, while police deaths are tracked, the killings of civilians are not tracked. They are treated as individual cases. Um, And so until you get into the 80s, you do not have data that you can track on civilian deaths at the hands of police. And so it's, um, it's enormously difficult to figure out historical trends. What you have to look at instead are the things people are saying about them and the kinds of historical events that are precipitated by police shootings. And I, I just want to remind everybody, I think this is a fairly well-known historical fact, that the intense political uprisings of the 1960s, um, the urban uh, riots and rebellions of you know New York and Rochester and Philly and then Watts, famously in Chicago, the over 300 riots from 1964 to 1967, and then the massive numbers in 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., um, the great majority of those before, from 64 to 67 were precipitated by acts of police brutality, by police killings of black men in black neighborhoods. Okay. I just want to take a second to kind of address this, this notion, this mentality that the Black Lives Matter movement has declared war on police. The Black Lives Matter movement is not anti-police. It, it, they were anti-police brutality means that we're anti-police, like saying that we're anti-parents because we're anti-child you know, abuse. That just doesn't make sense. But since we're you know, talking about statistics and we're looking at things and people are, are under the assumption that there needs to be protection from individuals within the Black Lives Matter movement, especially by police, um, statistics show that 70% of cops who were killed in 2016 were murdered by white men, not blacks. And if we're talking about more statistics, if we're talking about the fact that if African Americans make up about 13% of the total population, that constitutes more than 25% of the police-related homicides. So there's consistent racial disparity. Black men count for more than 40% of those shootings, despite representing more than 6% of the population. Of the 172 white men that were killed in 2015, only 18 of them were armed. If you count the number of black men who were unarmed that were killed, there's consistent racial disparity. But we're not talking about these numbers. We're talking about the sensationalism of saying, oh, well, they, they damaged property, or oh, they, they are not organized, or how dare they shut down a, a, a on-ramp, or any of this other type. Black people are dying on a consistent basis, and we're taking the conversation in a direction that it doesn't need to go. Mm-hmm. Can I add um, one thing that is worth noting here, too, is that, um, uh, you know, th- this is also not a secret, right? Um, police forces around the country have been engaged in um, militarization through the purchase of um, of military grade equipment that spans from armored vehicles to 
um, particular kinds of weapons to particular kinds of uh, gear that they wear. And, um, and one has to wonder why it is that police forces, which are, um, you know, given the charge of protecting and serving communities, are facing some of these communities in gear that you expect you would ex- expect to see uh, on battlefields abroad, and we have seen them on battlefields abroad. And I think there's a real discussion to be had here about um, empire coming home um, to to our shores and to our communities. But I do think that it's worth um, really thinking about why it is that these police forces have moved to this kind of uh, equipment. And, uh, and, and, and what that says about um, this vaunted mission of protecting and serving. Hmm. Can I just add to that, that I think what we look at when we see police militarization since the 70s is not a simple trend from zero to, to now, that actually um, police and military weaponry and tactics have been engaged in constant exchange over the whole course of this nation's history. You see police going abroad to contribute to military efforts, especially in imperial situations. Um, The case of the Philippines in 1898 being a really profound example of U.S. police going to a site of U.S. military conquest and lending their materials and expertise. And, you know, it's there is constant exchange and cross fertilization between the military and the police. And uh, one outcome that I hope for from this focus on um, state violence is a a broader analysis of the ways that military and police violence are connected, particularly in a moment when some of the folks who are also impacted by um, racial profiling and police brutality are um, immigrants, Muslims, people from the Middle East, people who look like uh, they might be the, um, the other side in the war on terror or in the U.S. occupation of the Middle East. When we have something like the Dallas shooting just a couple weeks ago, it seems like it's immediately linked with the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm wondering if um, that's really getting in the way of of what you're saying the whole movement is supposed to be about and that people are just refusing to sort of hear the message. Dominic, do you want to? Yeah. No, no, I I completely agree. Um, There's there's always going to be those situations where they're trying to link um, and trying to discredit the movement, especially when it's making headway and it's starting to, to gain more and more allies. If you look at some of these, especially in Baton Rouge, if you look at some of these movements and the people who are participating, it's not entirely black audiences. They're mostly, you know, women, children, you know, white individuals, Latinos, uh, uh, Asian, um, a lot of people within the queer community. A lot of people are coming to this realization that this really truly is a problem and it's an outrage. But when you have a situation where a lone gunman goes out and decides that they want to, you know, take what they believe is justice into their own hands, especially if you go and look at the research, if you go and, and check on this particular individual. The one is shooting that took place, uh, I believe it, I don't know if there's been a couple, the last one, the most recent one that took place. Um, if you went to his page, if they haven't taken the video down yet, he stated specifically, I'm not associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. I am not associated with any other organization. I don't have any type of terroristic ties. I'm doing this as me. Now, I'm not condoning his, his speech. I'm not condoning his actions. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And it's the antithesis of what the Black Lives Matter movement stands for. But you have to look at these incidences and take them for what they are. This is a lone gunman. This is a terroristic act by one individual who took matters into their own hands in the most deleterious and heinous fashion humanly possible. But that's not the Black Lives Matter movement. You can separate the two. 
But since we live in this whole dominant subordinate culture, because he's black, he has to be associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. Because the Black Lives Matter movement is speaking out against police brutality against black and brown individuals, he has to be associated by, by association of being black. And that's not how that works. And that easily helps to shift the conversation away from proactive reforms. It helps to shift it away from systemic change. And that's the, yeah, that's the pitfall that we wind up being in. Hmm. So Al Sharpton was speaking in New York this week, and he was um, sort of asked, I guess, if the Black Lives Matter movement needed needed to continue or something. And he he basically said that a sustained protest was really the only way to affect change. And I'm sort of want to, I guess, pose that to all of you and just see, like, do you think the changes that we're seeing are positive? Um, are we creating a conversation, or are we creating more violence? I guess. Uh, Michelle, well. I, don't, I don't think that we're creating more violence. I wouldn't say that we're creating more violence at all. The state violence has always existed. The violence that has been taking place behind the scenes has always existed, and it's been said numerous times. For those people who are in the communities, this type of information that you know people are dying in the streets and being killed at the hands of police officers is not new information. It's just that now it's being recorded. Now we have mm-hmm. social media to share it. And what has happened in incidents is where we can assume that it's an isolated one. Uh, we know that if it can happen in four different states to four different people within the span of five days, then this is an epidemic that has to be addressed. Um, the sustained protest is, is one of those situations where, you know, he's absolutely right. You can only knock on the door so long and ask for justice. You can only, you know, beg and plead and say, please, you know, do something to change the, the tide in this country that has allowed these types of killings to happen with impunity. Like, if Freddie Gray can be apprehended and have his spine severed, and then all the police officers who were involved in his arrest, no one was responsible, that's, that's something that you have to really take a hard look at. And if we sit there and be quiet about it, if there's no voices raised, if there's no disruption of your comfort... Who is going to change things to make sure that that doesn't happen to someone else's child? Mm-hmm. It has to continue, and it will continue until things are changed. And I think that we have made progress. When you can have someone like Newt Gingrich or someone like, you know, we, we, have, we have politicians that I never thought I would ever hear the words Black Lives Matter or anything even remotely close to that, speaking up and speaking out. That means the needle is being moved. We may never see freedom the way that we envision it within my lifetime because it's been so long that we've been embedded in these systems that we truly don't know what freedom looks like. But when we're talking about freedom from oppression, we know it's not this. So my goal is to move the needle. The goal of many people within the Black Lives Matter movement is to move the needle and continually put enough pressure on it that it continues to move until we get to that day that we no longer need to push. I just want to offer our phone numbers real quick so in case somebody wants to give us a call in the next 10 minutes. We do have one call, too, that we're waiting to get to, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Nicole, you want to say something oh, before I go to the caller? I just wanted to jump in and just say that I think um, we neglect the state responsibility for police shootings when we don't think about the state refusal to regulate guns. And, you know, you can understand police shootings as an incident of state violence, particularly when exacerbated by other state um, uh, inflicted conditions such as uh, poverty and geographic concentration. All right. I want to go to Joyce on the phone. Joyce? Yes. Hi. Um, I'm calling in basically because I get very tired of having people say they don't understand the Black Lives Matter movement and the spins and twists that are put on it when 
the Black Lives Matter statement is crystal clear. Um, to make it even more clear, if the, the leaders of the movement would treat it like a call and response instead of just a statement, if people were to say, chant, Black Lives Matter just as much, Black Lives Matter just as much, then there's no ambiguity about the meaning. The point is that historically and statistically, black lives have not mattered as much. All lives matter. Everyone's lives matter. Historically, the black lives have not mattered as much as other lives because they're disproportionately killed according to you know, their population, their percentage of the population. So I would put in a plea for clarity that black lives matter is not just a statement. It's a call and response. Black Lives Matter just as much. All right, Joyce, thank you for your call. Anybody want to yep. respond? Um, I'd just like to respond to something that Sarah asked earlier about the, um, you know, whether there's greater violence or where we're leading. Um, you know, in the 70s, when there was a lot of attention on police brutality and a lot of government action on it and uh, lots of studies and lots of federal money devoted to the problem and the question, um, what we saw is police reform that ended up growing the police significantly. And of course, this is also the moment when we saw the foundations laid for the intense explosion of incarceration that would begin in the 1980s. All the legislative and all the ideological groundwork for that was laid in the 1970s. Um, in response to the threats of racial justice and social justice movements for genuinely redistributive justice. And when we're looking back in that moment and thinking about its relevance to today, I think we need to be enormously wary of calls for the kinds of reforms that end up widening the net or spending more resources to police. We do not need more police training, community policing, police body cameras. What Black Lives Matter activists have called for um, and have taken some heat for are things like defund the police. But I think this is entirely consistent with actually what some police executives are also calling for. For example, uh, Dallas Police Chief David Brown, who's um, uh, whose denunciation of the kind of practice of give it to the cops is making the rounds in social media, in the media generally, that we've taken all the social safety net and all kinds of social services and destroyed them and given money only to the police who uh, then are working as the vessel, the channel, to take po people from the community into the prison system. So to defund the police is not a simple solution to take in isolation. It is part of a step of diminishing um, these two systems that work together, policing and prison, and replacing them instead with systems that support and fund the kind of world we want to see, actual mental health care, health care, social uh, safety nets, anti-poverty programs, genuine public education. Um, and since the, uh, since the uh, implementation of neoliberal economic policies in the 1970s, we've seen profound growth in inequality in our country. And when inequality increases, state violence has to increase in order to protect it. The only way we will diminish police violence and the violence of the prison system, which the police support, 
is through genuinely redistributive programs uh, in terms of social services and actual income disparity. All right, we only have about three more minutes, so I do want to I, I want to give Michelle an opportunity to say what she wants, but also to look at some of these solutions. You know, what are things that should be being being done, Michelle? I'll just say something really briefly about, um, and this kind of goes to Sarah's question about progress and, you know, our, where we're going with this. I have to say for myself, I, I'm an African-American woman, um, and having lived through this last few years has been enormously eye-opening to me about um, what the intersections are. I have class privilege. I have heteronormative privilege. I am an able person. And all of these things have been highlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement in ways that I don't think we have any precedent for in our history. I mean, I, I, I could be wrong. I haven't studied movements um, as a historian. But my sense is that the way that they fused um, and insisted on foregrounding these this complex of issues is truly remarkable, and it has the capacity to open everybody's eyes, not just the eyes of, um, of white people, right, um, but, but black people, Latinos, Latinas, um, and everybody else. I mean, uh, these are all, we all have um, some form of privilege, um, and being aware of it helps us all to be better people, I think, so. Dominic, uh, solution, strategy? Well. I think a lot of it's already been stated. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about the demilitarization of police, that's imperative. When we talk about um, reforms in terms of putting the money into the communities where it's needed most, um, they said it here in Indianapolis here recently, if the poverty increases, so does the crime. Well, we're continually pouring millions and millions of dollars into our police departments, giving them more armaments, giving them heavier duty vests, giving them helmets, um, armored vehicles, and things of that nature. When well, we have food deserts, you know, we, we have uh, individuals who have uh, subpar education. You know, there's there's opportunities for employment that aren't available to individuals because we've made the word felon the new N-word. Uh, there's all these other types of things that are necessary to try to change and, and try to turn the tide in this uh, war that's being waged against us, not against police. Um, so the defunding of police is definitely something that's uh, needed and is imperative. But if they're going to do training, if they're going to be doing any type of uh, restructuring, then it needs to include, include things like transparency. It needs to include things like uh, racial uh, equity training. It needs to include things like microaggression training um, and getting away from more of this. Um, we need to be aware and prepared for ambushes, and we need to be aware and prepared for other ways to be able to take down assailants. Um, we're not doing any type of arrest referral programs for individuals who need mental health assistance or for individuals who are um, involved in nonviolent offenses like uh, prostitution or, or drug use or things of that nature. Uh, we need to find ways to uh, get these individuals help and not necessarily fill up our jails. And that's all that I see that is happening right now. So all those things are potential solutions and things that need to be addressed immediately. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, appreciate all your comments and all from all three of you. Thanks for your efforts and your eloquence on this issue. Uh, for uh, the three guests, Dominic Dorsey, Michelle Moyd, and Nicole Siegel, and also for Drew Dodlin, our producer, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. 
Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.